Happy Valentine's Day and welcome to the Love Honored Vacuum Podcast. I know a lot of people love Christmas and a lot of people love Easter, but for our blog, really, Valentine's Day is the holiday, isn't it? Because it's all about love and marriage and even sex. So we're going to have some fun today. Uh, I've been talking this month about how to spice things up in the bedroom. Yesterday, my post at tolovehonoredvacuum.com was how to spice things up and, and how to try new things in bed. And that's all very well and good. And I encourage you to go read that post. But what I really want to talk about today is how we can develop sexual confidence. Because I think a lot of the problems with spicing things up or trying new things are because a lot of us feel like somehow that's not quite proper or we're not quite good at it and we'll look like idiots or we'll look silly and we just don't even know where to start. So how do you develop that kind of confidence so that you can really embrace your sexual side because God did make you to be a sexual being. (laughs) So let's look at what sexual confidence really means first and then we're going to look at what to do if you do not have any of that. What is a sexually confident woman? First of all, a sexually confident woman knows that it's okay to have sexual desire, right? Sexual desire is not wrong. One of the most common search terms that I actually get on my blog is, is it a sin to fantasize about your husband? And I find that so funny. It's like, it's like, why would you even ask that question? Of course it isn't. It is not a sin to fantasize about your husband. Thinking about sex is not wrong. Having sexual desire is not the same thing as lust. Lust is wrong, yes, but what lust is, is feeding sexual desire for something which is not right. So lust is entertaining sexual thoughts about someone that you're not married to. It's not lustful if you're having those kind of thoughts about your husband. That's all very well and good. And in fact, you were made to be a sexual being. So a sexually confident woman knows that she was created with a sex drive. And she knows that while sex is certainly beautifully intimate, it's also something which is kind of primal, which is about pleasure. And she yearns to feel all that and pursue all aspects of sex, not only the super intimate aspects. Okay, here's something else. A sexually confident woman knows that it's okay to initiate sex and make something happen. It doesn't mean that you're not a proper woman if you actually start the encounter. You know, if you're the one to come up beside him and start kissing him, if you're the one to sit down beside him on the couch after the kids have gone to bed and take off your shirt, you know, (laughs) just do topless watching of movies, that's totally okay. Like if you're the one to start these things, that's good. That's what a sexually confident woman does. A sexually confident woman enjoys enjoying her body. Okay, she knows that she doesn't have to have a perfect body to enjoy sex. And a lot of us find that we're not able to be sexually confident because we have this ideal of what our bodies should look like. And when our bodies fail to meet that expectation, we feel like we can't be sexually confident. The reason that we have such body pressure in our society today is because our society has made sex only about the body. When they take it outside of the confines of marriage, it stops being about emotional intimacies, any kind of spiritual intimacy. It stops being about commitment and it starts being only about the body. And then the body takes on a whole new meaning that it never meant to have. And so that's why we see such strong pressures for women to look exactly a certain way. You don't need to give your society that kind of power over you. 
Their society is pretty gross. It should not have the power to rob you of your sexual confidence. And it only has that power if you give it to it. So do not give our society that kind of power. A sexually confident woman does enjoy her body. She's motivated to take care of her body, but her failure to look like a supermodel doesn't steal sexual energy from her, okay? She knows that God created sexuality to be more than just about attracting multiple people, but instead it's about having fun and showing love to one particular person. Now here's one that you guys might have trouble with. A sexually confident woman deliberately stokes sexual energy. A woman who values sex knows that sex is fun and that sex is important, even if her libido isn't always ramped up. And I've talked ad infinitum about this one study that they did out of the University of British Columbia, which showed that for men, arousal preceded making love. Okay, so most guys were already aroused before they started, whereas for women, arousal tends to kick in after you've begun making love. So most women are not actually aroused before they start making love, but a sexually confident woman understands that, and she takes steps to ramp her libido, to think positively about sex, to embrace sex, even if she's not particularly aroused right now, because she knows that if she dedicates herself to this, and if she decides this is going to be a fun thing for her to do... She's actually going to really enjoy it. And because of that, a sexually confident woman knows that sex is a great part of her life and she tries to make it a big part of her life. She doesn't ask herself, okay, what's the minimum I can get away with when it comes to sex? Or do I have to have sex tonight? Or is my husband going to be grumpy if we don't have sex tonight? Instead, she asks herself questions like, what is the best thing for my marriage right now? Or how can I help us feel close? And isn't this something that I could really get a lot out of tonight? So her default isn't, should I tonight? Her default is more, hey, why not tonight? (laughs) A sexually confident woman knows that sex should be mutual. This is one that I think a lot of you guys have problems with. A sexually confident woman knows that her sexual needs matter too, and knows that her pleasure matters, knows that her desires matter in the bedroom, and a sexually confident woman is not afraid to talk about those things. She doesn't feel like she's imposing on her husband. And this is a really hard one for us to get our heads around, because a lot of us grew up in Christian homes where we were taught that sex was just for the guy. And last month when I went off on the book Love and Respect, and especially that horrible sex chat which talked about how sex was about men's physical release and how women needed to provide that or else their husbands were going to be tempted to look elsewhere. And it never once talked about how women are supposed to feel good during sex too. And it never once talked about how sex is supposed to be intimate. That's the message that so many of us grew up with. And it's one of the big reasons that a lot of us don't have sexual confidence because that's been stolen from us. So I want to encourage you to fight back against that. If you were given these negative sexual messages growing up that you didn't matter, that ultimately your husband's sexual needs matter more than yours. And so it's not okay for you to say, this is something that I need. It's not okay for you to say, you know, if I've never had an orgasm, that's not a good thing. And we need to work on this more. That's okay for you to say that. Because a sexually confident woman is someone who knows that her sexuality matters too. You know that you were not created just to serve your husband, but that he was created to serve you as well. So that's what a sexual, sexually confident woman is. But I want to also talk about what sexual confidence is not. 
sexual confidence is not about skill or experience or even whether one is really orgasmic. You know, sexual confidence is more about a mindset that knows what God made sex for, that knows that sex is good, that has a positive view about it, that's focused on making sex great, even if it's not there yet. When I did my surveys for the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, I found, I think the number was about 36% of women rarely or never reached orgasm. This is something which is still really common. And if you're there, if you just haven't reached the big O yet, or you, or it's something that is so rare for you, that doesn't mean that you can't be sexually confident. It just means you've got a little bit of learning to do, and it's honestly okay. I had a great a two-part post, which I'll leave a link to on the blog, from a woman who'd been married for 26 years and finally figured out what all the fuss was about and finally started to reach orgasm when she started developing some sexual confidence herself and started to get rid of all of these negative messages that she had been given about sex while she was growing up. So even if you haven't experienced awesome sex yet, you can still be sexually confident by getting your mind in the right place. And it's really that part that I want to stress now. You see, I get so many letters from women who say, I just don't feel like I'm sexual and I don't know how to see myself sexual. And I want to talk about how you can actually make that mind shift if you're just not there. If you're hearing all the stuff of what a sexually confident woman is and you think that is not me and I can never get there. So let's let's just look at this for a minute. I had a reader send me in this question once and she said, I've been reading everything you've been writing about being more adventurous in bed and telling your husband what you want, but the problem is that I'm British. I would love to talk to him about these things, but that's just not who I am. And if I started talking sexy, I think he'd wonder where his wife went and what do I do? I think a lot of people have this question and even people who aren't British. Okay, I think that that but I'm British is just simply an excuse. I'm not saying that's not something that you feel. I'm just saying we need to push through it. Because honestly, I could hear any number of people saying this to me. I've heard I've heard it when I'm doing my girl talk in the United States. Oh, but I'm from the South. You know, sorry, I can't do a Southern accent very well. But you know, we just we don't talk like that. We don't do that. Or when I was in Africa, you know, but I'm Nigerian or but I'm Kenyan or but I'm Baptist. You know, we all have all of these excuses, all of these cultural excuses about why we can be shy about sex and why we just can't feel sexually confident. And I agree. Cultures, all these different cultures, whether it's British or Southern American or some African cultures or some religious denominations, all of these cultures, yes, they can have, and there's many more. I don't mean to be picking on any of these particular cultures. I'm just saying I've heard it in so many different ways. And yes, these cultures can have a tremendous effect on how we see our sexual confidence. But we don't need to listen to our culture. And we can take some of that back. And so here, I want to ask you a fundamental question, okay? Do you believe that you're supposed to grow? Okay, I'm going to ask that again, because this is an important question. Do you believe that you are supposed to stay the way you are, or do you believe that God wants you to grow? Because what I hear from a lot of women about this whole question of how to become freer in the bedroom and give up some of that control freak tendencies that we all have that I was talking about last week in the podcast as well is, but I just that's just not who I am. Well, that's not how the Bible talks about who you're supposed to be. Often we use our culture as an excuse as to why we are the way we are and why we can't change. We think of it as something that is fixed. But listen to what Paul said about culture. Okay, this is from Philippians 3 verses 19 to 20. 
Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our cultures don't matter. Our God does. And what does our God want? I've been talking about this one a lot too. Our God says that we have been predestined to look like Jesus Christ. We're supposed to look like Jesus. Now, I know that this sounds really weird in a conversation about sexual confidence, okay? But but bear with me for a minute because I'm going to make a bigger point that I, I and I'm going to bring this home. All right? God wants us to be transformed. He wants us to look like Jesus. Now, how do we look like Jesus? Well, one of the aspects of that is that we start to agree with the things that Jesus says, It means that we call the things that Jesus calls bad, bad, and we call the things that Jesus calls good, good. We conform our minds to his truth. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then the more that we embrace truth, the more we are looking like Jesus. Romans 12 verse 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing, and perfect will. We're not supposed to be conformed to this world. We're supposed to renew our minds. And that means that it doesn't matter if you are British or Southern or Kenyan or Nigerian or Baptist or Lutheran or whatever. You decide that you're going to put all of that aside and chase after Jesus because Jesus is what matters. I think one of the problems we have when it comes to sex is that we see our culture as embracing sex and the church as rejecting sex. And so we feel like if we're going to conform to Jesus, we need to join the church culture. But just because you're in a church culture that rejects sex does not mean that you are embracing Jesus. Like I said, that love and respect book, number one best-selling marriage book, and it is giving a completely unbiblical view of sex. Okay, and many of us grew up in our church culture with an unbiblical view of sex. This is not about embracing our church culture. This is about embracing Jesus, about calling the things that Jesus calls good, good, and calling the things that Jesus calls bad, bad. Jesus is what matters. Let's let go of this idea that this is just who I am. That's not truth, okay? That's an excuse. It's an excuse that says there's nothing that I can do about this because this thing called me is an immutable, unchangeable being. So if I'm going to have great sex, then you need to give me some advice that does not actually include any major discomfort or work on my part. <laughs> that's that's the feeling that I get from a lot of my reader questions, okay? Like, tell me what to do that will not actually involve any discomfort on my part. Sorry. I really am, but there is no advice like that, because if you're going to embrace your sexual side, it means you need to let go of this idea that that is just who I am, and you need to get your thoughts lined up with who Jesus made you to be. See, growth and change only happen when you decide that you aren't going to accept who you are, and you're going to chase after who God made you to be. It means taking every thought captive. This is something I talk about a lot in Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. It's about taking your thought captive, examining it, and demolish any thoughts that don't conform with truth. You need to replace the thoughts that are wrong with the thoughts that are right. And I want to fill you in a little bit of my story. I've shared this on the blog a lot. I shared this in the beginning of Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. But this is really what I needed to learn when it came to sex, too. See, when I got married, sex was terrible. 
it really was. It hurt. It was really uncomfortable. Um, it did. It was not pleasurable at all. And he wanted it all the time. And we got into some really dysfunctional patterns with sex early in our marriage. It became all about him. He felt terrible because I wasn't enjoying it and I was feeling awful. But at the same time, I felt like if I didn't have sex a lot, I was a bad wife. And so we just got into these terrible, terrible cycles. I started thinking that what I really wanted to do was to go back to our dating period when we were best friends and we could talk about anything because sex was the thing that was ruining our marriage. Before we were married, we weren't having sex. Our relationship was wonderful. But now this was the big thing that was causing all of these problems. And I thought if I could just get rid of sex, (laughs) then our problems would go away and we could be friends again. And I was stuck in that cycle for quite a few years until this thought occurred to me. Sheila, if God made sex to be amazing, and everybody else in the world seems to think that sex is amazing, why would you want to miss out on that? Even if you can't understand or even imagine how sex could be amazing, can you believe and trust that God made it that way and that he can help you get there? And that was the beginning of my transformation when I started to realize, okay, this is something really good that God made and I do not want to miss out on it. I didn't actually know how I was going to get there yet. I couldn't even picture how sex could actually be. It, It actually was an act of faith and it wasn't an act of faith that sex was good. It was an act of faith that God said sex was good. So it it really was faith. It was like, this is something amazing that God created. So why would I want to miss out on it? And that's where the healing started. That's where I was able to relax a bit. And yeah, it took us quite a few years to figure it out, but we did figure it out. And maybe that's what you need to do too. God I think, wants us to have amazing sex lives. He wants us to embrace our sexual side and be sexually confident. And ultimately, this is a change that God wants to make in your life. And he can. The Holy Spirit, I know it sounds weird to talk about sex and God at the same time, but God created sex. He created you to be a sexual being. And in fact, I think that as we understand passion, In a sexual way, we understand more of God. The whole reason that God created orgasms the way that he did, where we actually have to let go of control, where thought almost stops for a while and we just experience, that's part of what God wants us to understand in in terms of our relationship with him too. It has to be a letting go of control. It has to be sometimes just an experience of being with him. He made sex to mimic how he feels about us. Sex is a good thing, okay? (laughs) And so he wants to transform us into sexual beings, but he can't do that until we yield to him. He can't do that until we willingly set aside these roadblocks that we have put up to a great sex life and we say, God, I don't see how yet, but I believe that you can do this to me. You know, listen to Paul. Paul in Romans 7 made the argument that the Christian life is hard and it's frustrating, but God wants to do something. Okay, so he says in in Romans 7 verses 18 and 19, I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I think this applies to a lot of us in sex. You know, we want to have these great sex lives, but everything keeps stopping it. Even if we dedicate ourselves to this, we keep getting exhausted. It keeps not working. And we keep having these bad attitudes. Paul so desperately wants to change, but he keeps failing. And that's what Romans 7 is about. But Romans 8 is about what happens when we yield to God. And it's the spirit that changes us. 
I know that's kind of weird, and it is a big mystery of faith is how God can change us. But when we surrender ourselves to God and we work hard to conform to his truth, we replace our will with his will, and then he can start to change the way we think so that we become different people. It's kind of like a partnership, okay? God does the changing, but he only does it when we decide to surrender and let go of this thing called me. Oh, but I can't do that because I'm British. That's just not who I am. No, when you let go of this thing called me, God can actually change you and transform you. And that means that we can be sexually confident. I know that's a lot of theology on a, on a podcast about sex, but I really want us to understand this, that this is something amazing that God made for you. This is something that God wants for you. And this is something that God wants to transform in your life. I've got a lot of very concrete things in the blog post this week on how you can try new things in bed and get more adventurous. And I really want you to look at those because they're a lot of fun. I've just released a new product on some sexy dares that you can do with each other this year. Uh, So much fun. Do check that out. There's links in the podcast. It's a great Valentine's Day gift for your spouse if you haven't gotten one yet. But I want you to know that you can be a sexually confident woman. This is something that God wants for you. And when you embrace the truth, you honestly can get there because he can transform you from the inside out. This does not need to be just who I am. You can be who God made you to be, even sexually. Maybe you're engaged and you're wondering what sex is actually going to be like. Maybe you've been married for a while, but you're wondering what all the fuss is about. I get it. And in The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, I lay out how God made sex to be awesome, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Check it out today. Hi, welcome to Millennial Marriage. I'm Rebecca Lindenbach, Sheila's millennial daughter, and here we are to talk everything marriage and millennials. Yeah, because I'm not a millennial, but you are a millennial. There you go. <laughs> exactly. I am the token millennial of To Love, Honor, and Vacuum. Actually, I think everybody else who works for us, except for Tammy, my assistant, is millennial as well. Joanna, Connor, Samantha, you're all millennials. That's true, actually. I don't know if I don't know if our new um, graphics assistant is. She might be right on the cusp, but she might be a Generation Z. But but we are we are millennials except for me. So John Gottman article, talk about it. John Gottman article, an excellent Gottman article. I mean, pretty much everything that Gottman says about marriage is very very interesting to read. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wrote about the fact that millennials are redefining marriage, and what he meant by that is people are getting married a lot later in life, and they're seeing it more as a personal choice to be done after they've like found their identity or once they've completed what they want to do with life. So it's more of a, it almost seems more of a retirement plan than it does like an entire life trajectory. Yeah. And, and you know, like you live your life and then you settle down and you get married. Right. And it's not something that is really even a huge goal, or if it's a goal, it's a goal very much in the future. But right now, um, there are more important things. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and I know that a lot of people in reading this are going to think, oh, millennials, so selfish, so entitled, they don't want to make these big decisions. <laughs> but I honestly, reading through it, I can't help but think, yeah, no wonder. <laughs> I mean, let's look at what it's like to grow up for a lot of people who are in their 20s and 30s right now. You know, um, our parents, statistically speaking, were more likely to have been divorced or remarried than previous generations to be completely honest i mean mom when you were growing up you remember there weren't as many kids no i was actually i was actually the uh almost there were there were times where i felt ostracized because i was one of the few with divorced parents 
And you were with, yeah, and you lived with a single mom who had a good job, and you lived, like, and, and you didn't live the typical kind of single parent life that we see now as right, well. Right, right. So when you're looking at that, even alone, the fact that our parents are more likely to be divorced than other generations, I mean, no wonder we're going to be less likely to jump into a marriage very quickly. Yeah, and I think there's also a much more of a focus among millennials on figuring out who I am first, like, this whole empowerment. Exactly. Um, experimentation, very, very big among millennials. Well, not only that, the whole self-esteem movement was when we were in kindergarten and early elementary <laughs> school. The whole idea that you need to tell kids, you are the most amazing person in the whole entire world. The entire world revolves around you, and there's you can do nothing wrong because you need to believe that you're really, really good or we're worried you're going to have mental health problems. Right. Right? That's what that's what it was, and that's what we grew up with. And so you, you mix the fact that we're raised to think, I can be whatever I want, I can do whatever I want, the entire world is open to me as long as I make sure that I do everything right so that I can live out my dreams. And then if I get married, my entire life might fall apart through divorce. Why on earth would anyone want to get married in their early 20s? Yeah, and so they really want to be a lot more careful. And this article is spitting this is a good thing. Um, let me just mm -hmm. read to you a quote from a woman named uh, Brooke Jen, who's a, a married millennial and a relationship coach. She says, for the first time in history, people are experiencing marriage as an option instead of a necessity. It's a fascinating happening and an incredible opportunity for marriage to be redefined and approached with more reverence and mindfulness than ever before. <laughs> okay. I mean, there are some good things. I do think that it's a big benefit to not rush into marriage and to be sure um, of the person that you're going to marry. At the same time, I think that there can be some big drawbacks mm -hmm. to fe this feeling like I have to have myself all figured out before I can get married. So now you, you're not a typical millennial I am not. I got married at the old age of 20. Yeah. I would have been a old maid back in biblical times. Yeah. I remember when I got married thinking <laughs> there's, I'm like, I got married when I was 21 and I remember thinking, man, my kids are never going to get married this young. And then both you and Katie got married younger than I was. Younger than you were. Exactly. <laughs> I think you were each basically exactly the same age. Weren't you within a month of each other? Like, it, yeah, we were within a month of each other. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, here you guys are 20 and a half. So you're getting married so young. Um, yep. and I got married really young and it's not that I think everybody should get married young. I definitely do not. No, of course not. You guys were both really mature. I but the question is the, why are you getting married at the age that you are? Right. Yeah. And my concern looking at my generation is that people are not getting married until later because they're afraid of commitment and they're afraid of the big decision. Mm -hmm. It's not because they're like, no, I have something better for my life right now that I am called to. And this just isn't the season for me. Mm -hmm. It's more of a. I want to make sure I don't miss out on traveling or not having to share my money with someone or not having to worry about someone else. And to be completely honest, it's a lot more selfish than the idea of previous generations when it came to marriage. Now, again, like I say, I say that with a caveat of I think it's quite um, understandable when you consider how a lot of these kids grew up. Yeah, and I, and I think, too, one of the nice things that, that your dad and I went through is that we got to figure out who we were together. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Connor and I are getting that, too. I mean, I'm a totally different person than I was when I was 20 years old. Yeah. And a lot of that's because of him. I don't think we had any new furniture until, like, the <laughs> first piece of actual new furniture that we bought, I was probably 33 years old. Like, until then, everything that we had was either hand-me-downs or major secondhand. Um, mm -hmm. When we got married, everything was secondhand. And there's there's kind of something fun about figuring out your life together when you have nothing. 
It's <laughs> well, it is, and it's an adventure, and it's romantic. And Connor and I can always tell the story of our first little tiny shoebox apartment with our hand-me-down couch and our the dude who got stabbed. Yeah, the dude the who got building. stabbed. It was a really bad. It was a really bad neighborhood. And, it's all we could afford. And you did not tell me that the dude got stabbed outside your apartment door until yeah. you moved because you didn't want me to. Yeah. But those are the kinds of stories that we have together. We have our coming of age stories with each other. Mm-hmm. And that's the big thing that I think a lot of people are missing. And the other thing that I, I realized in the article, which is just a practical consideration, one woman who is 32 years old and who was single and not looking yet was saying, like, I'm very glad that now I can go forward and try to find the right partner because I know who I am and I just want to spend the next little bit figuring out who I am as a career woman and who I will be as a wife and a mother. But I'm honestly thinking, if you're 32 years old and mm-hmm. you want to be a mother... Mm-hmm. That that can actually be it, because if you think about it, okay, it, it's going to take you at least a year after you meet someone to get married, you know, and then you want to be married for a little bit before you have kids. Well, even just, even just naturally, it just takes a minimum of nine months. Yeah to have a kid afterward but to be healthy in a marriage I think it's often it's it's, I mean you can obviously be healthy in a marriage to have a very early kid but it's it's easier for sure if you have some time to get to know each other first Mm -hmm. now of course none of this means that if you get married late you're going to have a bad marriage I'm oh we're not saying that at all I think that the goal should be that you value marriage and that and that you are ready for whatever God brings you at the right exactly. at the right time. But I, this whole idea that I'm I'm arbitrarily going to say I'm not going to get married till I'm thirty, I think, is a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, like if God doesn't bring the right person for you until you're in your thirties or forties, like that is your timing, mm-hmm. and that is something to be celebrated that you're following God's plan for your life. But if God brings you someone when you're twenty three and you're too afraid that you might have to miss on traveling. Or you might be inconvenienced by thinking of like by thinking of how your decisions will affect someone else. That's that's a tragedy. Yeah, that's a totally different story. And I I just think that too often we're thinking about marriage as being something which is an afterthought, and these other things are more important. So getting the career exactly. is more important. Getting the house is more important. And honestly, you can be married before you're settled. Well, and honestly, I find it so funny because the same people who are choosing career over marriage or also posting memes that say no one said on their deathbed I wish I worked more yeah it just seems like we are so confused as to what we actually want as a generation that we're all setting ourselves up for a lot of loneliness and that's why I'm so passionate about this and that's why I'm so kind of frustrated when I see these trends because Mm -hmm. you know all we as humans really desire for the majority of us is real connection with someone who understands us yeah you know, and we think we're going to get that through, you know, a lot of quote unquote self-love, but not the real kind of self-appreciation that comes from Christ, mm-hmm. but almost like padding our ego until we can convince ourselves that we're worth it. Yeah. And instead of, instead of actually looking for real connections with other people. Yeah. Now just a shout out again to all our single listeners. We're so glad that you're here. And yes. I know so many of you are frustrated because you are ready for the guy and he hasn't shown totally. up. <laughs> um, and, and I really do feel for you. I find it difficult to talk to single people because I, f- I got married at 21 and I feel like I, I could pretend that I understand the depth of what you're going through, but I know that I don't. So mm-hmm. I just want you to know that I know that I don't get it. <laughs> so yep, exactly. so I, I, I am sympathetic, but I know that I don't fully get that because I haven't experienced it and I haven't walked through it. But I, I think the big thing is just that we put God first and we put relationships second and everything else is is. is last and if we do that then we'll be ready when the relationship comes along but if we put Mm -hmm. anything else in front of relationships like career whatever 
you run the risk of really messing up your marriage. And also we just set ourselves up for a lot of loneliness. Yeah. So just be careful. And and I I hope that your generation, even though you may have started badly because my generation failed you as parents, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I hope that the millennials can turn it around. And even if they do get married later, I hope they have great marriages because that's what our culture needs. Like this podcast? Then you'd love the blog. Join us at tolovehonorandvacuum.com, where Sheila blogs every weekday about marriage, faith, and, of course, sex. At the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum community, we deal with the messiness of life. We don't traffic in path answers. Join us for thought-provoking posts, discussion starters, and great challenges to make your marriage and your love life strong. Reader question time. Every podcast, I like to take a question that's been emailed in or left in the comments and take a stab at answering it. And I love this one because in this podcast, as we're talking about how to spice things up in bed or do things differently, here's a woman who wants to do things differently, but actually the opposite of spicing things up. So I think it's a good mix. So she writes, sex is two to three times a week and is physically great for both of us. Okay, that's awesome. She's already doing really well here. But he won't say anything when we are being intimate, not even I love you. I have tried explaining to him how happy this would make me and how much it increases feelings of intimacy for me, but he is unwilling or unable to do it. I'm an INFP and he is an ENTJ. She's talking about Myers-Briggs stuff there and I'll explain that in a minute. So I'm thinking he just isn't comfortable expressing his feelings. How can I help him? He's definitely one to resist if he feels nagged, and I don't want to make him feel bad because he is a great husband. But on the other hand, living my whole life without feeling tenderness in the bedroom makes me so sad. Can I press the issue, or do I just need to look the other way and see how he does show me affection and then just leave him alone? Okay, I love this. (laughs) Uh, First, just for some information for all of you, INFP, ENTJ, those are Myers-Briggs personality types. And I wrote a series, I think it was back in August. I'll leave some links to that in the blog post about how we can tell our different personality types. He is an ENTJ. That's just like me. I'm also an ENTJ. So I am your husband, I guess. And she says that she's an INFP. So she's someone who is a big feeler. He, on the other hand, is far more logical. And so feelings aren't as naturally accessible to him. And so she's thinking that perhaps that's where the disconnect is. And it certainly could be. Two really big thoughts that I want to give you today that can help you. The first one is is just a red flag. I'm not saying that this is what your husband suffers from. This is just more of a general comment about this kind of thing that I'm seeing in society right now, which is that our pornographic culture makes sex solely about the physical. Okay, like the way that sex is portrayed in porn, the way that sex is portrayed in movies or whatever, what's really attractive is this idea of something new. It's mostly about the body because sex is outside of marriage and our media. Then sex is no longer, it's not about commitment, it's about just your body. And what that ends up doing is it makes the idea of love or an intimate relationship seem unsexy. So it's almost as if there's two extremes. There's the love when I feel connected to you, and then there's the sex, which isn't actually about you, it's just about my body. I'm not saying that's necessarily what he's feeling, but this is a very common thing where people who really, really love each other, it's almost like they have to turn that off in order for sex to be hot in the bedroom. So they don't understand how hot and holy can go together. (laughs) And that is a very common issue. 
I think it's also especially common if people grow up with pornography. I don't know if her husband did. I'm not trying to say that he did. I do think that we can pick up on these messages about sex even if we're not using porn because it's pervasive in our culture. That what is familiar and loving is not sexy. What is new and just about the body is sexy. But when you do feel that way, it makes it very difficult to talk during sex. Because if I talk about you in particular and if I say I love you, well, that's no longer sexy. <laughs> so that could be something that he's dealing with. And um, it might be just a good idea to have that conversation with him. You know, hon, we live in a really pornographic culture, and I'm not saying that you use porn or anything, but do you find that it's hard to think of me as sexy because you know me so well or because I'm I'm your children's mother or whatever? And maybe show him um, the post about how sex can be hot and holy at the same time, and I will leave that link in the podcast post on toliveonandvacuum.com. So that's just a general thing, may not apply to this couple, but general thought that I have. Okay. Now, how would you deal with it with your actual husband? <laughs> I would say something like this. You know, hon, if he's an ENTJ, he's very goal-oriented. He likes to feel like he is good at something and like he has accomplished something. These are things that are important to him, important to all ENTJs. So I would just say, you know what, babe, you make me feel so great in the bedroom physically and what I need from you now to make sex, take sex to that next level is to feel intimate emotionally. So here's what you can do. While we're making love, I want you to say one of these four things. Okay, just a couple of times. I love you. Uh, say my name. Say anything. Whatever those four things that you need to hear. But give him very direct instructions and let him know that this is how... Not that it's something that um, that you want or that you'd appreciate, but like if you do this, you will be an amazing lover. <laughs> Let it be a goal that he can set for himself, and that can that can just help change that dynamic of that conversation. Because sometimes when cause sometimes when we approach sex and we say, you know what, I'm really not liking is this. That makes him feel like he's doing something wrong. Whereas instead, if you could say, you know what would take sex to the next level for me? And so just a slight dynamic change. The other thing, you can do some of the other things I've talked about in the main segment. You know, make a his night and her night. And on a her night, <laughs> it's just all about you. Start with a massage. He has to tell you that he loves you. He has to tell you what he loves about you. He has to tell you what body parts he loves, whatever. But even write those out in detail, what you want for the his night and the her night. And just say, we're going to do this a couple of times. And if he's sees the effect that it has on you, then he might he might get the idea himself. Okay, one final thing. I know I said two things, but I do have one final thing. She did say, can I press the issue? It's okay to want to feel intimate during sex. And if you're not feeling intimate during sex, if you feel like sex is only about the body, it's okay to make that an issue. All right? It's okay to say, sweetie, I understand that you're feeling badly about this and that you don't want to talk about this, but this is important to me. And us feeling intimate and us feeling close is important to me. And I know it's important to you too. I am not trying to say that you're bad. I am not trying to say that you're less than. And I am not trying to say that I don't love you. I'm trying to say this is really important to me and this can take us to the next level. I know that's what you want as well. So let's work through it. But yeah, it's okay to press the issue and it's okay to have that conversation because you matter and the intimacy in your marriage matters and feeling like sex is intimate matters. So I hope those gives you some good ways to talk about it because God did make sex to be more than just physical. It is supposed to be emotional and spiritually intimate as well. And when it is, the physical actually gets better.
Hey there, Cypher Comments of the Week. I'm Rebecca, Sheila's daughter, and I'm taking over comment section this week because my mom and dad are away on a tour down in the States. They're living in an RV with spotty internet connection, and so they can't um, record and upload this part of the podcast this week, um, so I'm taking over it. So here we go. I want to talk about some comments on a post that was put up back in the beginning of the month about how porn can actually create a lot of anger problems and emotional immaturity among people who have grown up using pornography. And there were a lot of comments here just telling people stories that I thought were really interesting and that I wanted to share. So I want to start with this one. One woman writes, great post, Sheila. As a female who was addicted to porn before blocking it with Covenant Eyes two years ago, I used it as a coping mechanism for my emotional needs. Being raised by an abusive mother, every time the present reminded me of the past, I would watch porn and the emotions would disappear, but only for a moment before they resurfaced again another time. I knew this is not the best way to deal with my past. I had been going to counseling for 10 years to heal from my traumatic past, but I just refused to give up porn until two years ago. Once I learned how to truly cope with my emotions, using a healthier approach instead of masturbation, I felt so much better and I'm no longer scared to be vulnerable. I don't hide from Christ like I used to. I'm willing to let him in and know the deepest part of my heart. And I'm ready to allow my future husband the same too. Porn is deceptive and destructive. It can only give you temporary pleasure or healing. We need to drink from the well of life where we'll never thirst again. I think that's such a good and important story to share because, you know, momentary pleasure is not the same thing as the great healing love that God can bring. Now we have another comment along the same lines from a man this time who says, Great blog, Sheila. I can tell you as a guy that has battled with this for much of my adult life that the anger related to porn is a real issue, and sometimes it is easy to disconnect the cause, porn, from the truth. I would often associate the anger with the stress in my life, but the truth is that porn is how I dealt with the stress. The two are intertwined. The other connection I submit is also how closely tied shame is to all of this. Many men are fully aware that their use of porn is wrong. They feel a lot of shame, and this adds to the anger and disconnect with the ones that they love. One thing we need to understand is that a husband making promises to change in response to shame is different than one who responds out of conviction. Shame is often something that we experience and respond to as a way to get out of a hard situation. Conviction is what is required of someone who is going to get help and change for the long haul. Shame is a part of the consequence of sin, but getting caught is not a reason to change. Becoming convicted and repentant is the next critical step in the process. There were a lot of comments along this line where it's important to understand that If someone's been addicted to pornography since their childhood, there needs to be some compassion there for what they've gone through and how this has impacted their whole adolescence and just their sense of identity too. When it's wrapped up in this really dark addiction, there needs to be compassion when talking to these husbands, but at the same time, we need to be honest and demand more from people. You know, we need to see that true conviction and not just, well, I got caught and so I guess I'll apologize so that I get out of trouble for now, right? So I thought the conversation about this post was really interesting and really important. And listen, if you do have a spouse or you yourself struggle with pornography, we really recommend Covenant Eyes. It's great. It doesn't just filter or block dangerous websites, but also it allows you to set up an accountability system so that the people who you trust will get an email with kind of a grading system for how your internet history was. So like, you know, you get an A plus or all clear for your browsing history or, hey, there were some questionable websites visited last week. So it's great because it allows for the accountability of friends and community to come in so that you can have people who are in your corner rooting for you and who you know care about you and who care about your marriage. 
So if you're interested in checking out Covenant Eyes, we will have a link in the description for this podcast. And if you use the code TLHV, that stands for To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, that's TLHV, you'll actually get your first month of Covenant Eyes for free. So you can try it out. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation on all the posts this last week. We know we definitely have. We love when we get your comments. We love hearing your stories. We love hearing your testimonies of how God has brought your marriage through horrible things to come through the other side and really experience true joy and healing. So keep sharing them. They're a huge encouragement, not only to us, but to the other people in the comment section as well. And I pray that this is a struggle in your marriage, an ongoing struggle, that you and your spouse are able to stay strong and work together and keep each other accountable in Christ. Thanks for listening to the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, and happy Valentine's Day, everyone. I hope you'll have a spicy one. Check out my new sexy dares and check in at tolovehonorandvacuum.com for help to make your marriage feel less like a to-do list and more like an exciting adventure.